I think mm. one of the reasons why our startup ecosystem is not thriving is because it's so very, very difficult to raise money in South Africa. Um, I can't tell you the number of meetings I've sat in trying to raise money. Um, and corporate SA is quite notorious, where you sit in lots of meetings, and you go and you pitch to them, like, oh, we love this, we want to get involved. Then we call Sally from finance, and you go back and you pitch again, let's call Johnny from what, what. <laughs> and you're, just, you're just like dancing around for these guys for like eight months, and at the end, they're like, oh, it's not aligned with our strategy, but we wish you the best. But now you've lost an entire eight months busy pouncing around with these different guys. Then the guys that do want to invest don't understand startups. So they say to you, no, we want a 51% stake. Like as soon as you take 51%, you've killed my energy. Like how am I going to really, you've literally taken my business, you know? Mm. And you hear stuff like that. They want you to take a 51% stake. Um, so I think when it comes to fundraising, I think before we get to fundraising, we have to go back. Make sure you're solving a pain point. If you're not solving a pain point, the fundraising journey is going to be a nightmare. Like you need to be solving a big pain for someone. Welcome to the Mass Startup Podcast. My name is Michelle Mudal. This is a podcast for Africa's opportunity seekers, problem solvers, future shapers, world builders, and entrepreneurs. This podcast is meant to be a platform to encourage, empower, and educate young people in Africa on entrepreneurship, startups, and business. Must I say a house? Must I just say it? No, just say it. My name is. Oh, okay. My name is Caridas. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Kula. So what is Kula? Kula is a... Okay, I didn't expect that question to hit me like that. Sorry. <laughs> That's cool. Sorry, sorry. I just need to frame it. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, so Kula is a platform that essentially links farmers with marketplaces. Uh, but over time, we've learned that in agriculture, you cannot solve problems in silos and isolation. So we now are able to link farmers to funders. We're able to link them to input suppliers because we understand that we exist in an ecosystem, but primarily we link them to markets. Yeah. So uh, early on when I really like engaged with the work that you were doing, um, how, actually, when did you guys start? We started researching and digging around in agriculture in about 2016. Mm -hmm. um, it was actually by mistake that we got into this industry. Uh, my business partner took a trip to Israel, met mm -hmm. my other business partner. Um, and when they came back, they were just raving about um, the opportunities in agriculture, how you had this country on a desert that had more agricultural output than a lot of African countries. And it prompted us to really start asking questions about the state of agriculture in South Africa. It's quite interesting because um, we don't have an agricultural background. So I studied actuarial science at UCT. Matthew did finance. Uh, we thought that would be the biggest hurdle, but it actually turned out to be our biggest positive because the things that the industry found to be normal, we found to be absolutely appalling. And our solution was based on that, is that how people could be okay with things that were so wrong. And that was the birth of Kula. Yeah. Um, and how, how important to have, you know, the things that you learned in university, and I know you said, you know, it's completely detached, yeah. you know, actuarial science versus agriculture, but how have you seen your education contribute to what you guys are actually building? I think practically, um, the, some of the biggest contributors on my side have been just financial management. I think just being able to, to do modeling and projections for your company, that's been super. Um, also, information systems was a silly course that I did at first year, but it's actually been very helpful just being able to navigate your traditional Word documents and Excel and stuff like that. Uh, but I think the, more than anything, the biggest contributing factor my years at Varsity had was the networks that I created when I was there. The friends that I met um, actually dropped out, so I didn't end up getting that degree. Yeah. But being there, the networks, the people, I think... One thing about UCT that it really challenged me a lot on my initial views. Mm. Um, I really dreamed about being a professional, but I came out thinking that I, I, I can't see myself doing anything else other than entrepreneurship right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually asked, you know, on Twitter, I was like, hey, guys, um, I'm going to chat to Caritas because you're a celebrity, you know. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not even. So, like, obviously, you're a celebrity amongst, you know, young people are looking at tech and trying to look for role models that look like them. Yeah. And it's like a really, really powerful thing to look at someone, you know, you said you're 24 and 
25. 25. <laughs> and I don't think there's enough role models that you, you'd never see that yeah. on the typical, hey, this company is doing this yeah. and this and that. Yeah. So, like, for someone like that, you're a role model in that sense and a celebrity in that sense. And I asked everyone on Twitter, I was like, hey, I'm meeting Caritas and what questions do you have for him? And um, a guy named Mash D said, um, you recently spoke about being an entrepreneur by circumstance. Yeah. And you're speaking now about, you know, dropping out of school and you just saw entrepreneurship. What does that mean, you know, being an entrepreneur by circumstance? So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm from a township, um, from Ekangala, in Tuana Sekasi. Um, I was born and raised there. Um, my story is sort of a typical story of a black child where my mom left uh, the Eastern Cape, came to Gauteng, looking for a better life, and my dad got her pregnant and he ran, um, and she was in Gauteng with, yeah, no avenue to make income, so I was born into, yeah, quite a, a poor circumstance, you would say, um, where we lived in a shack, um, you know, the traditional sort of black um, type of story. Reality, yeah. Yeah, and I think very early, early on, my mom really taught me that the best she could do for me was just provide food and provide shelter. Um, and I learned probably at the age of five, four, um, that if I wanted Christmas clothes, I think that was what ignited my entrepreneurial spirit, that I wanted to have Christmas clothes in December, I needed to sort of start putting things together uh, myself. And I think I'm an entrepreneurship by circumstance in that sense, that I didn't really choose it outright. Mm. I just needed to have Christmas clothes. And because I needed to have Christmas clothes, um, I then identified a gap. At the time, it wasn't entrepreneurship per se, but I realized that, you know, in Akasi, you've got cheese boys and you've got, uh, you know, Tina, was in Kukwin, you know? Yeah. And I realized that the one thing that both sides liked was wire cars. And the kids, the cheese boys play Xbox, you know, they, they can't do anything with their hands. Whereas for us, we make our own soccer balls using plastics. And, but we, we both sides liked wire cars. And to this day, you can never find a good wire car at any retailer. The best mm-hmm. wire cars are made in the hood. So I gathered a bunch of my, bra- my friends, we stole some, okay, this is, <laughs> but anyway, we stole some wire, <laughs> we cut some wire, we sat behind my yard, and we made, I think, five wire cars to start with. Um, then I told my friends, my cheese boy friends, let's meet at the four-way stop, bring your parents. They got there, we had made a hammer, I think we made two hammers, hammer was still a big car then, and I was shocked at how much they gave me for the car, so their parents mm. gave me 50 bucks per car. Then I took um, 20 bucks for myself and I gave 30 bucks to the guy who actually made it. And those 20 bucks I used to give to my mom and that's how I would fundraise for my Christmas clothes. So I think the whole entrepreneurship by circumstance thing is that it's something that I had to do for me to get Christmas clothes. Mm. Um, And that's, I didn't choose entrepreneurship outright. It was sort of, I was forced into it from a very early age and it's been part of my life, but I never viewed it as entrepreneurship. It was only defined to me probably when I got to varsity that, oh, this thing you've been doing is entrepreneurship. So I've been selling sweets in class. Um, well, now it seems like smuggling because you're not allowed, but I was selling sweets in class. I had a car wash back home. There's a couple of things that I was always doing, mm. but I never really viewed it as entrepreneurship. It was more so helping my mom and making sure that when Christmas time comes up, I'm wearing new clothes. And like that resourcefulness and, you know... Um Excuse the language here, guys. But um, <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I watch a lot of entrepreneurship content and yeah. stuff like that. And yeah. there's a guy whose name is uh, Leo Cohen. He's like yeah. one of the you know founders of um, I think it was Def Jam. Yeah. And he says um, necessity is a motherfucker. <laughs> that is true. And like, it's <laughs> that literally that that yeah. idea that you you go into a situation. Look, you don't choose your situation. Yeah. What you're born into and what yeah. realities that you face when you young yeah but like you build out that resourcefulness that tenacity that audacity to go you know what i might be able to create value in some way and i want to be able to do that in you know whether it's wire cars car washes to agri tech yeah like that resourcefulness becomes like a big part of that yeah um how valuable were the lessons that you learned in that early part of your journey um for what you're doing now I think the biggest lesson is that I don't live my life expecting the world to do any favors for me. I think just as a premise for my life, even beyond business, mm-hmm. I've learned to make do with what I have. And I think that's been a really big trade for me in entrepreneurship, where a lot of people coming in, you know, they say there's no funding for entrepreneurs, there's no support, there's no this. And everyone has all these excuses for why their business shouldn't grow or why they shouldn't start. Whereas for me, 
I have learned that to, to make do with what I have. And the biggest lesson that came from that is that the world is not going to do me any favors. If I want something, I have to go out, I have to get it. I wanted to go to UCT. It meant I had to get certain grades. I wanted to do actuarial science. I had to get certain grades. So for me, it's always been a pursuit of I expect nothing. You know, even with Kula when we started, we started with the polo. We didn't have a truck. We didn't have any agricultural experience. We knew nothing about the industry. Took the polo, reclined the back seat, pumped the aircon um, onto cold, pack it up with spinach. We go and we deliver. You know, and that's where we started. And everything kind of spiraled from there. So the biggest trait that I've learned is that the world is not going to do me favors. Mm. And with the little that I have, I just clutch onto it. And I make something. You make a wire car, you make a soccer ball, and I think that's probably been the biggest lesson for me. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, let, let's go into Kula, right? So yeah. you guys start packing. You know, you, you spoke about this ecosystem of support for small traders now yeah. or small farmers now. Yeah. But what was the, you know, MVP? What is the first thing that you guys actually put out into the market to say, yeah. look, this is what Kula is, and like, what were you testing at the very beginning? Yeah, so actually it doesn't start there. It starts a, a, sort of a little bit back. Mm. Firstly, we knew something was wrong. We didn't know what. And I think the premise for me, for a lot of people wanting to go into entrepreneurship, you need to be solving a big problem. We knew the problem was big. Everyone eats, you know, food, you, have, you just have to eat. We all have to eat, you know? And we knew that something was wrong, and we didn't know what at the time, and that was okay. So we spent about six to eight months on the ground with some farmers in Makapanstad, in Ikenov, trying to just be a fly on the wall. And after that six-month period, it was only then that we came up with about three business ideas. We were like, actually, no one is solving the access to market problem. No one is solving this problem. No one is solving that problem. And after that, did we start conceptualizing how we could solve this problem, right? And then post that, we don't have any tech sort of coding experience. We're not coders. You know, now you mm. want to build a tech product, but you can't code. And coders are expensive. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> they are very expensive for your books. Especially, I think, in South Africa. Exactly. Insanely exactly. We, we couldn't. We couldn't, we couldn't afford coders, but then it's also going back to that same mentality. We're like, okay, but what is a coder, essentially, right? It's someone, usually with coders, the best ones start coding at an early age. So if you want to try and poach them while they're in the job market, they're not going to charge you anything less than 45K a month, right? Mm. But then these same coders go to Varsity, and everyone at Varsity is broke, even people who are doing uh, computer science. So mm. then we went to Vits, asked around who was the top student, found who, who <laughs> figured out who the top student was, because that guy's willing to take 5K. That guy's willing to take yeah. 10K, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's how we got... And um, 10K to that guy. Exactly. And is, it's is a lot. It's a lot. Versus. But it doesn't mean just because in third year, he's less of a coder than someone who's already started. He could actually be a better coder because coding is the natural skill that these guys harness from a very early age. So we went mm. into that market um, and through this guy's brother, we got Jackson on board who was sort of our technical co-founder um, and he helped build the first, the very, very first version um, of, 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 of Kula and started bringing to life um, yeah, what we wanted to get on board. Another key thing here that a lot of entrepreneurs make is giving shares outright to people. Just because someone's going to build something, you don't give shares. So we had to be smart about how we did it. So we had to allow the shares to vest um, over time with certain deliverables. And the relationship with, uh, with Jackson has been amazing. And he's one of the um, the co-founders of Kula because he came in at such an early stage. And part of the reason why I guess we did things better with Kula is because our previous business was so horrible. So before Kula, we ran a media type of business mm. and we learned so much and we made every mistake in the book. And we, are, we sort of learned those mistakes from that business and sort of refined, um, yeah, refined them going into Kula. Yeah. Yeah. So why were you packing spinach in a polo? <laughs> <laughs> So we needed to get going on the ground, right? So we needed to, because our, our theory was that uh, farmers don't have access to market, that buyers could be buying better um, from farmers, right? Mm. And I think one of the things about entrepreneurship is that you need to back yourself, right? Even if you don't have the resources, when you go to the client, you need to back yourself. And we, I think we approached Pick and Pay Bryanston at the time. I remember I went to them, we said, we want to supply them. They're like, no, man, you're not going to get into our database. You're not even, you're too small, you're right? Mm. And they, they probably rejected me about three times. But then what I did on the fourth time, I went to one of our farmers, uh, Daniel. He's got the best spinach you ever see. Mm. 
took his spinach, went to the pick and, to the pick and pay um, at Bryanston, and I had like three bunches. And I showed them their spinach, and I showed them the spinach that I had. They're like, no, but we can't onboard you. I'm like, no, it's fine. <laughs> Let me take these bunches and put them on there. I put the bunches next to that spinach. Between me leaving Bryanston and going to my place, after 10 minutes, the guy calls me. He's like, hey, can you give me 50 bunches of this thing tomorrow? We'll see how we work it out. <laughs> went to Daniel, brought 50 bunches the next day, took that 50 bunches. Then he's like, hey, man, can you give me 200 bunches, you know? Yeah. And that's where the polo thing started happening because we're delivering to pick and pay Bryanston. So now we're reclining these seats because you need to keep the temperature uh, good in the car and we're pumping up the aircon and we're going to deliver to these guys and once we started delivering to them when we went to spa we're like man we supply pick and pay bro you know it's like wow they trust you come through come supply us yeah. you know what i mean and that's how it sort of spiraled we're using the first client to get the second client but we had to for me it's sort of like a bulldozer approach we don't mm. really take no for an answer i'm not saying be aggressive or be weird like that mm. but they could genuinely see that our spinach was way better yeah. than the spinach that they had on the floor and that's how the relationship started yeah and you know they, they had already you know said hey look um we have a system or process and onboarding yeah. and databases yeah. of the people that actually have to supply us and this yeah. and that um what did you learn from that situation where, you know, you've got these things that sort of established industries have yeah. that are barriers to entry for new entrants, right? Yes. So what you guys did by just going, hey, look, this is the value of what we have. Yeah. You guys bypassed that whole thing. But yeah. what do you think is the challenge for a lot of small businesses and, you know, in established industries yeah. to try and, you know, go through that sort of, um, barrier I, to entry. I think you can, yeah, we can look at them as barriers to entry, but I think it's understanding what their true pain point is, right? Their true pain point is that they need to move produce and mm. make money and it affects their bottom line. And their pain point is that their customers are not happy with their spinach, right? Mm. And yes, there's bureaucracy, but I think understanding the true pain point of that client makes a really, really significant interest. And the fact that they didn't know, the fact that they saw how big the bunches are and mm. the fact they saw how quickly they sold they said, you know what, bureaucracy will just have to figure out how it catches up with this thing. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? So in our case, in any case, you need to understand what the true pain point of your client is and you need to appeal to that. And if you, and that's why solving a big problem and having a clear value proposition, your entrepreneurship journey will be a lot easier because people can adjust bureaucracy to accommodate you because ultimately you're solving their true pain point. You know mm. what I mean? That's why companies start using tech products. That's why they shift from old systems to new systems because you need to speak to a real pain point. If you're not picking to uh, solving a real pain point, then you're not going to be, you're going to have a hard, a hard time going through the, the bureaucratic process. Yeah. yeah. So you guys are, are pumping now, pick and pay, spa, supplying spinach from a back of a polo. <laughs> um, what comes next? So uh, big learnings. Um, I think at the time, we, we were just happy to be delivering stuff, um, delivering to these guys, uh, delivering to some restaurants around the area, but actually we were not making money. It was too expensive to deliver to individual, um, to individual restaurants. Mm. And we had to question our approach, even though we're getting kudos from everyone. Mm. And we bought um, an H100 just from the back of those small deliveries. We bought a small truck that we started moving the stuff in. But we started asking ourselves, is this scalable? Does this make sense? It doesn't make sense because you're mm. moving uh, 200 bunches of something. The petrol is more expensive than the profit that you're going to make um, on that particular thing. And we had to take a pause and we had to say, no, this is not the right way to go about it. The more scalable mm. approach, instead of supplying the individual pick and pay, actually makes more sense to supply the pick and pay DC mm. so that they can distribute to the other ones because then you get that economies of scale. So then we had to drastically sort of change and reform our business model of delivering to individual stores. And instead of going to an individual restaurant, approaching Baron Group and say, look, we want to supply all your restaurant with products. Mm. Makes more sense for the farmer, makes more sense for logistics. And we can, yeah, we're basically adding significant value to each user in the chain. And we stopped that individual delivering. And also we broadened our view of just not just the small-scale emerging farmer, but also catering for the commercial farmer. And that was around the time when we won Business App of the Year, and we got to go to Berlin, and <laughs> it was a very yeah, interesting time there, because sometimes you're not aware of some of the, your own biases by being in mm. South Africa. When we were there, they kept asking us, why are you not working with commercial farmers, you know? And we didn't really have an answer other than, no, the black struggle, the black farmer, the black whatever, but mm. we didn't really have a, a true business case. And they were saying, look, 
if you're not serving this for commercial farmers as well, then someone's going to, and that was true. And we mm. modified our business model to cater for both the emerging small scale and for the commercial guy. And it's that constant questioning of our approach, and now we do bulk supply. So now we do bulk supply B2B, not for the individual guy who's ordering 200 kgs, but moving a four-ton truck, an eight-ton truck, a 32-ton truck at a time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think enough young people are very conscious of industries like this. Yeah. You, know, you can almost say that most people might think these are the boring ones. These are the <laughs> unsexy. Yeah. Industries. Yeah. Money is very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's my measure of sexiness. I, I, I can tell you now, agriculture is very sexy. <laughs> if you find money sexy, you'll find agriculture to be very sexy. Well, what do you think, though, you know, young entrepreneurs often go for, you know, the much more appealing things where, you know, the business might not be yeah. as... I don't even... I don't know how I, I define this. So it's not technical, but like... It's dirty. You're going to get your hands dirty. Yeah. You have to be yeah. in the ground and you have yeah. to understand the yeah. problem that you're solving on a much deeper level. Why do you think young entrepreneurs and small businesses don't see the appeal or value in those industries specifically? Yeah. Look, I think for me, right, at the crux of it is that entrepreneurship is hard. Mm. Whether you are running a business on the corner or you are a restaurant, we all, like the hard part is guaranteed, Right. But you want to make sure that that hard part is worth it. And for me, the way you make sure of that is that you're solving a big problem. That's the first step. And especially in a continent like Africa where the education is a mess, um, food is a mess, you know what I mean? Healthcare. Healthcare. You Mm. want to make sure that you're solving a big problem. And two, you want to make sure that you can solve that big problem in a scalable way. And that's where the sexiness. For me, a sexy business is a business that solves a big problem and is solving it in a scalable way. And I think that's the starting point because a lot of young people are starting businesses, but the problems aren't big enough. You know, if you're helping someone find a dog or find a cat or, I don't know, some, something that's not big enough of a pain point, your entrepreneurial journey is going to be even harder because mm-hmm. you're not solving anyone's true pain point. And two, once you've found that big problem, ensure that you can solve it scalably because moving... I mean, you look at Kula, when we started... About three and a half years ago, you know, last year at this time, we were pretty much sitting in my lounge. Mm. And there's like four or five people. And now we've got 20 people. Mm. Um, by the end of September, they're going to be in the team. You know, last year, this time, we were in Omonde in a much smaller office. Now we're in four ways, you know. And that scalable element comes across a lot, even in the growth of the business, you know. Mm. Kula was worth zero, <laughs> you know, uh, two or three years ago. But now, I can't disclose, but we're worth quite a significant amount. You know what I yeah. mean? So that's solving it scalably means once you get through those school fees and that painful part, it means you start to grow exponentially. You know what I mean? So mm. for me, I'd say let's redefine sexy. You know, they say sexy is always changing. So sexy in business, it must be a big problem mm. that you can solve scalably. Yeah. That for me is a good business. Other than that, you're really going to struggle a lot and you're gonna that hard part of entrepreneurship is gonna last you a lot longer you know yeah. what i mean yeah um and you know just to tr- sort of go deeper into the industry itself what sort of challenges are small scale farmers um facing in the agriculture business <sighs> everything man everything i think it's a very old school industry um with very entrenched dominance um by by old players and and I think now you have a lot of first-generation farmers who don't know where to start. And we found this problem because we released an app that connected farmers to buyers. But if pick and pay, okay, I'm not mentioning names, okay, <laughs> but if a, a big buyer is going to buy from you, they want they have certain requirements because you want to know when you pick up your banana that it's not going to kill you, it's not mm. going to make you sick. Mm. So that means that the farmer who supplies the banana needs to have certain certifications. They need to have certain standards that they need to meet. And those are the barriers to entry. Mm. But then a guy, a first-generation farmer, doesn't always know what does it take for me to get global gap certification. Was it, what, is, what do I need for me to get local gap certification? And that's why we've had to modify our business model and we've, we're releasing an input, we released an input marketplace earlier this year where we allow farmers to buy inputs on the platform, request mm. advice, um, one of our partners, um, ACI, has about 187 crop advisors across the country. So we can get boots to any farm in the country through these crop advisors. Mm. They've got 132 depots, so they're plugged into our system as well. So if you place an order and you're in Kwakwa and you're in Toyando, 
we can get that product to your nearest depot. You can either go pick it up. If it's above a certain threshold, we can deliver it to you. So we realize that actually market access is a later problem. The first problem is how do we get these guys equipped? How do we make sure they have the right water, the right certification? And that's where we've started. And because it's one thing for Kula to just say, no, we're rejecting you because you don't meet the standards to supply and we leave you at that. So now we don't just reject. We say we're being rejected because you need... Uh, water, you need this, you need this, water license, da 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 da, and then we help you get that off of our system. Yeah. So the, the problems are massive, but largely it's an industry that works in silos. Mm. Like you, everyone, the inputs guy are in their own silo, the retailers are in their own silo, everyone is in silos, and we're coming in saying, look, we want to link everyone on the platform. Not dictate what you do, not tell you what to do, mm. but come together, engage in our platform much easier, and that's sort of the angle that we are coming from. Yeah, and yeah. obviously this leads to a much more empowering platform, yeah. um, one that actually um, accelerates the growth of these you know, small-scale farmers, independent yeah. farmers, and it becomes a more inclusive environment where people are actually being able to take part in a meaningful way as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, do you think that you guys think of the impact um, of what you guys are doing in a very like conscious way as well? So I think in our way, we always have a, a thing in the office that we, we're sort of building, doing good into our business model, you know, and, and we, we're not, not say we're against, but we don't promote this mindset of donations or this mindset of just give, 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 you know, we feel it's, it's more sustainable rather than giving a farmer, cutting a ribbon and just helping them with their borehole. Um, you, you need to help them get global gap certification because if they do that, then they can supply, you know, it's almost a more sustainable way to help them by giving them access to markets, that whole uh, giving someone a fish and or teaching them how to fish mm. um, approach. And for us, we believe that the best way you can support a farmer, uh, especially an emerging or small-scale farmer, is by getting them equipped and ready for market mm. and giving them a fair chance in the market. So allowing them being in Bakwa, being in Turndo, being in Hazyview to connect with the buyer who's in Santin that they otherwise would not meet in mm. the normal course of life. And we feel that's the most sustainable way to truly help them. And we're sort of building, doing good into our business model. But the most sustainable way to do good for these farmers is to ensure that they are ready for market and that they get a fair shot um, in the market. More than any grant, more than any loan or anything like that, we feel that this is the ultimate way to help these guys. Yeah. Um, that's incredible, man. And I think that's such a valuable way of thinking of impact and not, you know, just it being a trope yeah. that you throw around or whatever, but it being integrated into your business in a meaningful way. So, yeah. you know, you spoke about just the the values that you guys have as a company with that specifically, but um, what what do you look for in the team that you're trying to build? You know, you guys have gone from yeah. know, one guy, five guys <laughs> in the lounge yeah. to 20 yeah. people now. Yeah. Um, how do you think about hiring? I think that's one of the toughest parts and that's one of the biggest parts of my job. Um, I think we hire, yes, for technical capability, but culture is a very, very important element of, of us hiring. Um, and we look for people that, sort of embody our values in a way. And I know this all sounds very fluffy. Uh, even mm. to me, it sounds very fluffy. But I've realized <laughs> that it's very important. Like just the energy that you have with the team um, and ensuring that you've got the right sort of culture and the right work ethic. Because in a startup environment, I don't enjoy or no one enjoys asking someone, have you done this? You need to do this. You need to do that. You want to hire people who are self-driven. People are willing to learn. But we hire for culture and we hire for... Diversity as well, like that's one of our biggest um, things that we push for. And if you've got someone in the team who is, has a racism tendency or all of that kind of stuff, that's, those are things that we really don't care for. So we do proper due diligence before we get someone on board. Mm. Um, but ultimately, we hire for culture. And, and the reason behind that is that the first 20 people that we get into the company are very important because they're going to hire the next 20 people. And you mm. want to ensure that the culture is sort of permeating throughout um, the, the people that are in the, throughout the organization. So culture is a very big thing for us in terms of how we, how we culture, how we, how we hire, and also in terms of how we 
assess performance. So it's, it's a very collective approach where we all discuss, hey, what kind of environment do we want to work in? We actually went on a retreat as a team, and we said, this is what we value, this is what I value, and those are things we hold each other to. So when someone's criticizing you, they're not just saying, calling you out for no reason. They're saying, hey, but does this really speak to that please and thank you thing? And we try mm. to have them specific. So we don't want to say a generic thing like just respect, like what does that mean, you know, mm. um, or just caring or whatever. So we break it down. Say please, say thank you. You know, are you, are you embodying that, you know? Mm. Um, are you, we have a big... Uh, we used to have a big chowing culture before we started defining Kai. We, we, we used to love making fun of each other a lot at the office, and mm. it's fun. But then when we had this conversation with the team at this retreat, you realize that sometimes it's at the expense of other people. You know, someone mm. is chuckling, but inside they're actually dying, you know? Mm. And during that process, people were able to voice all of those out. And now we, we know that we don't make jokes at, we make jokes, we want to laugh with someone and not mm. at someone, you know? Mm. And even when someone makes a joke, you can ask them. The guys will be like, hey... Uh, is that at or with, you know, and, and that's sort of, and it's, it's a constant ongoing process of redefining culture because a workplace is an environment of people with different religions, um, different backgrounds, you know, different races, and you need to create an environment that is conducive for everyone to come on board, and that's the first part. And the second part is obviously excellence. So we set a very high standard for everything that we, that we do as a team, and we reward mm. it. Um, and yeah, I think those are the two elements. It's, it's the culture perspective, but at the same time, just pushing excellence in every single thing that we do. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at the team, you know, I know some of them and yeah. I've seen, I've connected with some of them on, on, on LinkedIn and stuff. And yeah, there's, there's a very like, it feels like these are people who are supremely dedicated to what they're doing. Yeah. Um, how do you even begin to make sure that you sustain that over a long period of time, especially in an industry that probably, you know, it take it might take a lot longer yeah. to get things done. You guys yeah. are a tech company and tech companies are often just like, okay, move fast and break things. You yeah. guys need to move, move, move. Yeah. Agriculture for me feels like very, okay, we're going to play the long game. Yeah. This might take three <laughs> months to get done. Yeah. I mean, we're still in a pilot, <laughs> you know? Um, I think with the team, um, People like to be included. Um, I think for me, as the CEO of the company, I I want to create an environment that I would have wanted to work in. And I know that if I feel I'm being dictated to, or I'm not being included in processes, I'm, that's not the kind of space that I want to work in. Mm. So one of the big things that we do with the teams that people are included, uh, so the product team is sort of a, their own unit and they set their own rules. They have their own working hours. They have their own whatever. Mm. And then I will sit with Matt and say, hey, are we meeting, these are the deadlines that we need to meet in terms of how they meet them as a product team, they get involved in how they work. They work at 4 a.m. and their working day might start at 12, might start at 1, mm. but they define their own experience. And I think more than anything, you want people to be included throughout the process. I think that keeps people on board, but also the vision in terms of where we're trying to go and the team being able to see the impact. So when they see the impact that we're having on our pilot farmers and our pilot buyers, that's the thing that also keeps... Um, sort of the team going, but including everyone in processes for me um, is a very, very important thing and not having, I think I always say that our hierarchy is there to allow us to work better, but mm. not for your boss to dictate to someone else. It's just there to allow us to make better decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mo moving to like um, your your business growth, how do you say you, you measure that? Like, what do you guys focus on when you measure whether or not you're growing as yeah. a business? I think for startups, it's different. Yeah, I think startups are in phases. So you, one, you have a phase where you're ideating mm. and you're, you, you first put the idea together and then where you're testing, you know, and then from testing, then you start rolling out. And I think for each cycle, like right now, the monetary element of it has not been a big me measurement of whether we're successful or not. So we haven't been looking at too much at how much revenue we're making. We've been looking at usage. We've mm -hmm. been looking at feedback. So we've been modifying the platform by, uh, by getting feedback from our users and basically seeing that after making those changes, are they still using it? And that's been a big sort of key metric for measurement uh, up to our seed round. And now between our seed and our series A, now we're pushing for revenue now because now we've spent a lot of time with this pilot of users who've told us we don't like this, we like that, add this feature, add that feature, add that feature. Now that we've sort of 
getting over that line, now we're pushing to say, okay, how much are we moving on the platform? How much is it moving? For? And with each cycle, that sort of changes. Like right now, culture is a big measurement for us because we're feeling that with the growth we're having on the team, people coming on board, the foundation we lay becomes very important. But at this stage, usage was a big thing. And it's tough. I know I'm sounding maybe abstract to a lot of people because you still need to make money for your business to thrive. Um, and we had the benefit that we had a previous business and we first used money from that business to fund um, to fund Kula. But yeah, I think that was largely the measurement. And then now, it's only now that we're really looking at numbers where we need to start reporting to the public that we've traded this much, we have this many users, we've done this, we've done that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you guys raised a, a seed round. Um, seed A, yeah. Seed a. <laughs> um, just to, you know, I like to be as inclusive as possible. Yeah. <laughs> what is the seed round? So I think in, in, by definition, a seed round is where you sort of, you have an idea of what's wrong and you have an idea of how to solve it and you raise funding to test that. Mm. Right, um, and so you say maybe you have an MVP type of situation, and you're raising funding to test because one of the big things about tech startups is that if you don't have money in the bank, right, and you're making decisions so that you can pay salaries, or you're making decisions so that you can pay rent, it can actually distort your broader business model. So seed round is to cover your bases so mm. that you know that the rent will be paid, people's salaries will be paid for the next two years, for the next three years, then you can really innovate truly for the users and not just thinking about putting bread on the table or paying people salaries. Because mm. as soon as you're thinking towards that, it really changes and you can end up not building the right business model because you just went for the thing that will make a quick buck. So mm. the seed round is sort of us raising a runway that's going to allow us to really, really, really think and really, really test and move very quickly without just thinking about... Um, bread or rent and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then that's going to allow us to get to Series A. And Series A would be where we have now sort of, um, I guess, have done well within a certain limitations of the market in SA. And then maybe between A to B would be conquering the SA market or the Southern Africa market. So it's basic different phases of expansion in the business. But the seed is exactly that. You're planting that seed and you want to make sure that you have enough runway to allow yourself to really think about the idea without the constraint of worrying about where's your next bread going to come from or how you're going to pay rent. Yeah. yeah. And what sort of advice um, would you have for someone that's trying to raise money, especially in South Africa's environment? Yeah. Which is, you know, I think it's a, it's a very complex environment, very yeah. siloed, very fragmented. Um, your experience of raising a seed round, um, what did it teach you and what advice would you have for another entrepreneur that's trying to do the same? It was horrible. I think it was horrible. I mm. think one of the reasons why our startup ecosystem is not thriving is because it's so very, very difficult to raise money in South Africa. Um, I can't tell you the number of meetings I've sat in trying to raise money. Um, and corporate SA is quite notorious, where you sit in lots of meetings and you go and you pitch to them, like, oh, we love this, we want to get involved. Then we call Sally from finance, and you go back and you pitch again. Let's call Johnny from what, what. <laughs> and you're, just, you're just like dancing around for these guys for like eight months. And at the end, they're like, oh, it's not aligned with our strategy, but we wish you the mm. best. But now you've lost an entire eight months busy pouncing around with these different guys. Then the guys that do want to invest don't understand startups. So they say to you, no, we want a 51% stake. Like as soon as you take 51%, you've killed my energy. Like how am I going to really, you've literally taken my business, you know? Mm. And you hear stuff like that. They want to take a 51% stake. Um, so I think when it comes to fundraising, I think before we get to fundraising, we have to go back. Make sure you're solving a pain point. If you're not solving mm. a pain point, the fundraising journey is going to be a nightmare. Like, you need to be solving a big pain for someone. And that sort of eases the fundraising round. And when going into funding, I know there's a lot of VCs out there, but I wouldn't advise entrepreneurs to go to VCs. I know this is a bit weird, but not in well, SA. Why would you say that? I'd say that because I think VCs, especially in South Africa, play like referees. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they want to referee you, where it's like, oh, it's the end of the year. How much have you made? Have you done this? Have you done that? Submit this to me every month. Complete the survey. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas I think your best investor is probably your client or mm -hmm. your user, someone who you joined at the hip with. And I think the likes of Slack are a good example where I think in IBM, I could be wrong, invested in them. Um, and 
by IBM investing, they also get all of their employees to use Slack as a platform. Mm. So the, your investor is also your client, and they can also open other doors for you. So you want an, an investor that has the same, where your success is their success, mm. you know, not where they're a referee to see, have you made profit? Have you increased users? Have you? But they're saying, how do we increase users? How mm. do we gain market share? How do we do this and sustainably? It, and it becomes more of a partnership. It's then. a more of a partnership. And that's the angle that we've gone with, you know, where we're saying, okay, um, we'll be announcing a, 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 our latest round, just closing off our seed round. We've got a JSE-listed company that's invested in us. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, yeah, so we'll be announcing that. But even with this particular investor, we are joined at the hip. Our success is their success. They're throwing their major resources or their JSE uh, multi-billion resources towards our success because we're both, us and the investor, asking ourselves, how do we make this work? Because if, if Kula works, it works for them as well. And I mm. think for me... For any startup founder, I would say instead of going for a traditional VC or financier, if you if you if your customer can be your investor, if your client or your user can be your investor, rather go that that route. And with VCs, I guess manage expectation um, mm. in terms of where you're trying to go. And even with the VC at the table, you still need a customer or someone who you join at the hip with um, in terms of going forward. Yeah. That's really an important lesson. And I think not yeah. enough people are having a conversation around that, yeah. around um, what it takes to raise funding and yeah. like, sustain a business um, in the environments that we're in. Yeah. I think ultimately, have something to show. You know, I hear a lot of people saying, I can't start a business because there's no funding. But what do you have? You know? yeah. Because even with us, when we're raising funding, we could say, look, we don't have much, but I can tell you this poll is moving four days in the week. You know, yeah. <laughs> like even to an investor, it really shows something. It's like we're moving, and you know what? We convinced Pick and Pay Branson to buy from us. You know, mm-hmm. we convinced Michael Hotel. We convinced, and investors thinking these kids have some fire in them. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You've got something to show, and essentially what you're selling because that's why the scalable element is important. You're saying if I remember what I used to say, I used to say to investors, if we could do this in Apollo imagine what we could do with the truck. You know what I mean? So you're almost <laughs> allowing the investors to think... There's a visual. Exactly. You're saying we, like, we, yeah, we don't have much, but look at what we did with the little that we have. And I think that's very important. And you take that little test case that you've built with what you have and you extrapolate. You say, if you invested in us, this is where we would be. But again, if you're not solving a big problem and you're not solving it scalably, your journey is going to be way, way harder. Yeah. That would be my two cents there as well. Yeah. So I have like a, a more philosophical question. You yeah. know, I, I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs, um, whether it's like fintech, yeah. um, fashion, yeah. you know, e-commerce, whatever it is, um, at a much higher level or much, you know, yeah. beginner stage. And the one question I always like start to think about is like, is there any point where you feel like you don't know what you're doing? And I mean, (laughs) (laughs) always. So, like, you know, it's very easy to feel like you don't know what you're doing and be okay with it when you just have spinach in a polo. Like, it's okay to feel clueless. Yeah. Yeah. But when you've taken investor money, you've built a team of 20 people, there's an office, there's a platform, there's users that rely on this platform. Yeah. It's so much harder to be okay with not being sure. How do you reconcile not being sure in Apollo and spinach versus being not sure at at scale? I think sometimes not being sure is actually a good thing because, mm. because it could mean that you're going into uncharted territory, you know? Um, and it's about also what you do about not being sure. You know, like, for example, coming into agriculture, not knowing how agriculture works, meant I needed to do a lot of research. So, yes, I don't know much about the industry, but the prompting action from that is that I need to do a whole lot of um, research onto that particular topic and make sure I've got the topic, um, yeah, grasped. But the fact that you don't know, I think for me is a good thing. But also you need to be okay with not knowing certain things. Like for example, we don't know much about retail, right? We, don't, we know very little about retail. We know very little um, about the, the journey of agriculture over the years. And that's why we brought in, um, we just brought in an executive onto the team who was a head buyer at SPA. He managed about three billion rand, um, he also ran one of the biggest farms in the country. And you know what? That's what hiring is for, that you're bringing in people because you don't know everything. And you're not mm-hmm. expected to know everything. That's why having Ayanda on board, I'm no lawyer, I'm no legal 
person and she brings that element and I don't think it comes naturally to me. So I need to be good at the things that come naturally to me and she's good at the things that come naturally to her. She's way better at managing the team and at, at other different aspects. Matt is very passionate about the product. He wants to know where one part, where the button sits, where the colors and the shades. I might not be as... I, I like the product and I'm excited about it, but I might not have the same level of excitement. And that's the beauty mm-hmm. of a team. And I always, I'm a big soccer fan, so I always use a soccer analogy to the team, you know, that, <laughs> <laughs> that there's different, you know what I mean? It's, it's literally like a soccer team, you know? Like the defenders have their part to play, the mm-hmm. midfielders have their part to play, and the strikers have their part to play. If the defenders are not defending, if the defender is trying to score goals there and trying to be the striker, he's going to lose <laughs> because it's, it's a team sport at the end of the day, you know yeah. what I mean? So... I think for me, it's like a soccer team type of analogy where the defenders need to do what the defenders must do. You've got your Van Dykes. And even as a defender, you can still be the, the very best as a defender and be player of the year and whatever. But everyone needs to know where they sit in the chain and the team needs to have a synergy. But if the defender is trying to be a striker and I'm try- the manager is trying to score goals or trying to be a goalkeeper, that's a very mm. disorientated team. So it's okay to not know, but make sure you're filling those gaps with people who do know you know, and don't try to be better than them if you're not. Just allow them to thrive in the spaces that they know best and you focus on the things that you do know. Yeah. So it's okay. So if, if Kula is a, a soccer team, what number are you? I've actually thought about that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I think looking at my role, it's probably more of a manager role. Um, ah. I think for me, it's about allowing the team to thrive, making sure that the culture within the team is very good, making sure that people in the team are playing in the right positions. You know, mm. if you take... Van Dijk and, okay, if you take a, a, a defender and, and put them at number nine, you might say they're a bad soccer player just because they're in the wrong position. And I need mm. to look at the synergy of the team. You know, how are we moving from back to front and all of that. So I think my role is probably more of the manager. The team must score the goals. Um, the team must, and watching the synergy, substituting players, hiring people mm. into the team and making sure that the hires fit into the system that we have in terms of culture, in terms of the way we play the game. Um, and yeah, and I think ultimately my role, and to train the team, making sure everyone is equipped. So it's creating an environment for the team to thrive. And I think I'm more of a Guardiola, <laughs> I'm more of a Pep Guardiola um, than an actual player on the field. And my role is to ensure the team has all the resources they need um, to thrive and yeah, just creating the right culture. Yeah. What are you most afraid of? What am I most afraid of? Yeah. Sheesh, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> I'm not afraid of failure. I think if you had asked me this at a different time, I would have told you I'm afraid of, of failure. But I'm excited by failure now. I mm. think it's an opportunity to learn. Um, I think I'm afraid of giving up. Yeah. Maybe. I think if it's I had so to, interesting that if those I two to... things are different. <laughs> like... <laughs> failing versus giving up are two different exactly, things. Exactly, yeah. I think if, if I had to, I think if I gave up, I think that's the one thing I'm afraid of. I think I'm, I'm, I'm ready for things to go bad. I'm ready to fail. I'm ready to make mistakes. But I think the one thing I'm probably most afraid of is, is giving up. I yeah. think that, I hope that day never comes. Um, but yeah, I think the, probably the one thing I'm most afraid of is giving up. I think failure in a startup environment is super exciting. When things go wrong, when things break, it's an opportunity to learn. Um, and it's okay. Even if things go bust, it's just fine because then you move on to the next one. And I think mm. even with the journey of entrepreneurship, that's how it is. The business we started with, you know, all the way from wire cars, okay, to financial education, there was a time I was involved in a clothing brand. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just part of the journey, you know, and you need to embrace it and you need to learn from it. So probably giving up is a big, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too afraid of it because I don't see it happening, but yeah, that's one thing that would really, that would mean I'm in a dark place. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So final question, man, um, really focused on the business. Yeah. What do you think the future of Kula is? The future is exciting. I think we, we're taking a low, playing a long game. We're playing a very long game. Um, I think after winning up of the year, was a big temptation to launch and do everything big you know that discipline to really take time and and focus on the foundation and drill deep and having this closed pilot um, I'm excited because everyone is into food um, so in terms of where we can expand where we're, we're unlimited um, I think I'm excited because I'm seeing opportunities even outside Africa and South America um, and I think the future for Kula is is very very bright and I think 
one of my favorite things about our business is that it's almost multiple businesses in one. You know, it's, it's almost the way this ecosystem approach allows us to have different elements within it. Um, but yeah, I'm excited. I think sometimes you walk into the office and you're like, where did all these people come from? You know, and, if you, and, you, hear, and you hear people having passionate discussions, you know, we're going to do this and the farmers are we're going to change lives. And you think, man, like that's exciting. You know, that this little thing that started in a jog, uh, where Matt and I were taking a jog and just talking about what could be. Mm. Now you've got people rallying behind it. I think that for me is super exciting. Um, and I think it's very exciting as well because there aren't many entrepreneurs like me who look like me. Yeah. Um, there aren't many entrepreneurs who come from where I come from. Um, I think we need examples. I think we have a problem in SA where entrepreneurship is struggling because not more so because we don't have examples, you know, and I don't have anything against, um, you know, your Mutsipes and whatnot. I think for their generation, they did the right things, uh, but they're not good examples for us because post-1994, there were big business opportunities. They were at the right place at the right time and they got them. But for us, we're not going to have apartheid again, you know? Yeah. If we're going to have apartheid again, then we'd know how to position ourselves to get the big contracts and the big deals, you know? Mm. So I think what we need is examples because the kids from the Gaslami who are growing from there need to see that Ukarabas lived in that check and mm. lived in that RTP house and he's there today. And then they can not necessarily copy my life, but they can be inspired to move in a certain direction. So I think also there is a sort of an ideological element importance to Kula succeeding. I think mm. also for African startups, you know, we don't have many that have really thrived, mm. especially ones that don't have sort of European um, involvement or mm. external, like a truly African startup started by um, people born in Africa. Mm. Um, it's also rare. So I think our success will be a statement um, and I think it will be inspiring and I hope we get to that point. Um, and yeah, I think that's, there's a lot of things exciting, but yeah, that's, those are some of them. I appreciate your time. Man. <laughs> you, you are truly a great example. I appreciate you, man. Thank you, man. Thank you for, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm shocked we didn't do this earlier. <laughs> <laughs> but all things come at the right time. Yeah, man. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. <laughs>